a great way to begin our worship this morning, asking God's presence and relying on his help and his guidance. Please, before we continue, take a moment and find someone and say hello to them and welcome them here into God's church. When you're done greeting, you can have a seat. These are momentous days, and uh, days that cause us a lot of consternation. What is this, what is this uh, business of, of us out of the many experiencing some sense of oneness as a nation? What does our future hold? This morning, you'll, you'll notice that a theme that runs through all of our worship is the theme of the trustworthiness, the goodness, the solidness, the rock solidness of God no matter what. Part of what we just sang, and that theme will run through every aspect of our worship this morning. We begin our series now by uh, this morning having a message that focuses on, as we come into the election on the things that we're called to remember as followers of Christ about where our hope should lie. As followers of Christ who are part of another kingdom, what does it mean for us to have our hope there and to watch things unfold here? And then after the election, Tom is going to be leading us in reflecting on how we are called to engage as followers of Christ, seeking to bring about societal change in a, in a culture where we experience more and more of a sense of the erosion of some of the things that matter most to us. What is our right place in the political process? How do we bring our faith to bear in the public square? As we begin our service, it seems fitting that we would remember this great line from Psalm 11. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can those who love God do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his holy throne. We put the crown up here as a reminder of that which our, our visual expression of who we are as a church affirms again and again and again that no matter what, Jesus is king. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are confident in your great love for us. Because of who you are, we can experience peace no matter what 
We need not fear what tomorrow holds because you hold tomorrow and you hold us. We bless, we worship, and we look to you. In the name of our King Jesus, amen. Well, in our worship this morning, our prayer over and over is that God would be that light shining in the darkness. He would be that beacon that guides us across the rocks, as it were, potentially, that we can hold fast to the promises that God has to protect his people. So would you stand? Let's sing to that, to that truth that we know from God's word. In our wrestling and in our doubts, in our failures you won't walk out. Your great love will lead us through. You are the peace in our troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in our troubled sea. In the silence you won't let go. In the questions your truth will hold. Your great love will lead us through. You are the peace in our troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in our troubled
Amen. It's a beautiful imagery. God is the pillar of fire, leading Moses, children of Israel, to the promised land, to the desert. That is our God. He is our cornerstone. He is our rock. He is our pillar of fire.
Jesus is our cornerstone. He is our refuge. He is our foundation. That is amazing truth that we proclaim that, that I, I fear sometimes we, we can take for granted as, as followers of Jesus. And, and perhaps we forget about those who are not followers of Jesus and how, how that is not their experience. They, they don't yet experience Jesus as their refuge and their cornerstone, as their foundation. In this season, we want to be urging one another to be having eyes for those around us, uh, those in our sphere of influence who are not yet followers of Christ, and, and be thinking about how we can reach out and share Jesus' love with them. There are uh, a number of outreach opportunities, um, Christmas outreach opportunities in particular, that, that you'll see defined in your bulletin, in the, the focus box on the um, middle uh, column inside your bulletin. Inside, you'll see these different Christmas outreaches. There's the Kingdom of Light Christmas program uh, that comes along with the Murdoch Warm Clothing Drive. There's the Murdoch Dinner, the Christmas Offering, and the Salvation Army uh, Bell Ringing. And you will hear details, more details about each of those in the coming weeks. And, and you can, and in fact, anytime you want, you can go to the website. At, you'll see Make a Difference. Um, and under the Make a Difference uh, menu item, it says This Christmas. And if you click on This Christmas, you can read all the details about the different ways that we are um, um, facilitating all of us to be able to reach out to non-Christians this Christmas. Um, so please be looking for those details, be praying about how you might take part in this. Again, it's not just taking part in a covenant Christmas thing, but, but it's our desire to, to facilitate this reaching out and sharing Jesus' love with, with those who are not yet followers of Christ around us. So I encourage you to be thinking about ways that you can be doing that. It is, it is a blessing that the Lord chooses to use us to, to share our faith. Maybe I should turn this off while I'm talking. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, so may it be that, that the Lord would be using you this season to work in a non-Christian's life to bring them closer to him. We, we also want to, as we are looking forward to that, we, we want to be celebrating some of the things that God is in the midst of doing uh, right now. And part of doing that this morning is inviting, uh, is receiving into membership some of our new members. And before I invite them up, I want to say a few things about that process, uh, this process of membership. When we think about our church family and we ask the question, who are we and why do we exist we answer that by saying we are his people. We are his kingdom for the display of his glory. And, and what are we supposed to be doing as a church family? What are we called to do? We are, we are called to know Jesus, to grow with his people, and to go to the world. So when we talk about church membership, really what we're talking about is, is those who are partnering in that mission with our church family. So I'm going to go ahead and have these uh, eight men and women who are um, becoming our mission partners this morning. If they would come up and stand to my right on this top step. And um, Brian Henderson, Mike Faith, and I had the, the pleasure of joining these eight men and women over the course of the last five weeks in our membership class, which we call the, the Discover Covenant class. 
And, and in this class, what we talk about is we talk about who covenant is, who we are as a church family, and, and what we believe that God has called us to do. And, and then we talk about what we, how we think through church membership. Again, it is, it is mission partnership. It is this, it's both a proclamation and a promise. It's, it's a proclamation that, that these men and women make that, that I am a follower of, of Christ. I am submitted to the king. I am committed to the king. And, and it's a promise saying, I promise to grow and serve along with this church family. And that, that promise, that commitment really goes two directions. It, it is also us as a church family receiving these eight men and women as um, brothers and sisters in Christ and our commitment to them saying, we will come alongside you and grow and serve with you in Christ. We had the pleasure, um, myself and a number um, from session, to sit down two weeks ago with these eight men and women and hear each of them share their testimony, their, their more full story of what God has done in their life. And though we can't have each of them share that full story this morning, we, we want them to each just share their name and, um, and a brief statement of their profession of faith. Can you hear me? hope it's good. I'm Naomi Cook, and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm Wes Cook, and Jesus is my Lord, Savior, and my rock. I'm Becky Hershey, and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm Aaron Hershey, Jesus is my Father, my friend, and my Savior. I'm Titus Wilson, and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm Hadley Wilson, and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm Emily Sampson, and Jesus is my rock and my salvation. I'm Daniel Sampson, and Jesus is my Lord and Savior and Prince of Peace. I'm David Henderson, and on behalf of this church, we are thrilled that you are part of it. We welcome you. Uh, it's a delight to have you part of this church. We have some official questions that we are uh, directed by our Book of Order to ask you. So Daniel and Emily and Hadley and Titus and Aaron and Becky and Wes and Naomi, questions for you. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy? Do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, and do you receive and depend upon him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the Gospels? Do you? Do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Do you? Do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God and ministry to others to the best of your ability? Do you? And do you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church session? And do you promise to promote the unity, the purity, and the peace of the church? Do you? Let me pray for you all. Lord, it is uh, with gratitude that we turn to you, thanking you for the way that, that it is your way to keep laying hold of the hearts of men and women and children, to draw them into relationship with you, and then to draw them into a church family. And we are delighted to be able to welcome these four and their families into our fold. 
And we pray, Lord, that as we welcome them, that you would guide and direct them in the ways that they engage themselves in our life and and calling as a church and say yes to you again and again at each step along the way. We also pray that you would give us hearts that are uh, welcoming and that make a place for them to come and join with us in our service of you together. We honor and bless you and we entrust these eight and their families into your loving care and ours. In the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Welcome. You guys can be seated now. Yes. Yes. Sorry to have you guys. Moment to continue to lift our church family up before the Lord. Father, we come before you excited about your work. Um, celebrating what you have done in, in the lives of these eight men and women who are committed to you. We thank you for your pursuing love of each of them, for revealing yourself to each of them. Father, we think ahead to these, these Christmas outreach opportunities, and, and we ask you that, that Father, you would, um, that these opportunities would be of you, that they would be used by you, that you would use us to share your love with others who do, not net, who do not yet know you. We lift up these efforts, Father. Um, nudge those in, uh, in our church family to, to participate in them just to the amount that, that you want them to participate. Father, we think of um, the other things going on in our church family. I think of the, the 24 uh, senior high students and adults who were at a fall retreat this weekend. And I, I thank you for your presence there among them. And I look forward to hearing stories about how you encouraged them in their walk with you and in their relationships with one another. Father, I think of the, the many men out here with chainsaws yesterday giving of their Saturday morning to cut down 18 dead trees on our property. And I think of that, that sweet and practical service um, for this church family. I thank you for that gift from them. Father, we, we move our eyes beyond just our church family and we look at the nation and, and what will go on this week with the election. And Father, we, we trust you in the midst of this, and it is troubling, and, and we don't know what's going to happen and what will happen when that happens. And so, Father, we lift these things up to you. We trust that you are in charge. We look to your words in Psalm 62 as you remind us, trust in you alone, for you are our rock and you are our salvation. You are our fortress. In you we will never be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on you, God. You are my mighty rock, my refuge. May it be that we would trust in you at all times, for you are our refuge. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I was struck this week um, in just contemplating the, the sermon this morning and, and kind of what's going on in the country uh, that by all appearances, I feel like I'm not overwhelmed by, uh, by what's going on, by 
you know, by in how I'm engaging with these things. Um, but it kind of struck me that fear, fear plays a significant part um, in maybe kind of my personality and kind of how I engage with things. And I realized that my tendency uh, when I'm afraid is to pull back and to create distance and space. And it kind of struck me in light of the, the sermon topic and, and that reality that though the appearance may be the same, that I'm not worried about some of these things, I realize sometimes that it's because I am afraid and I've disengaged, not, not because I'm afraid and I've pressed in uh, to Jesus. And so I encourage you, whether that resonates with you or not, however you, you have engaged um, your heart in, in fear and uncertainty, that we would continue to learn, that I would continue to learn what it means to actually, uh, to actually spend some time engaging that in such a way that it's not, uh, it's not just a disconnect, that it's, that it's real and that the Lord actually can meet you in that uh, versus the opposite, which I've, I've realized kind of this week that I, I tend to, to gravitate towards. My soul finds rest in God alone My rock and my salvation fortress strong against my foes and I will not be shaken though lips may bless and hearts may curse and lies like arrows pierce me I'll fix my heart on righteousness I'll look to him who hears me
my gaze on God alone and trust in Him completely. With every day pour out my soul and He will prove His mercy. Though life is but a fleeting breath, a sigh too deep to measure, my King has crushed the Lord, thank you for the uh, incredible gift of your word and the incredible gift of the, your presence by your Holy Spirit. We invite you to be our instructor this morning, and we pray that uh, you would make of us Bereans, ones who eagerly receive that which comes from you, and then run home to make sure that what's been taught is consistent with what your word says. We do want you to have the last word, Lord, in all things. We pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Well, we're here we are at the end of uh, more than 600 days of campaigning and just two days away from the election. And where do we find ourselves? Not in such a great place, actually. Full of fatigue and weariness over the whole thing, 
deliver us from the election, shouts the front page of the Journal and Courier this morning. We have uh, boiled things down to two candidates, one of whom is described as pompous, immoral, self-centered, and lacking self-control. The other of whom is described as calculating, crooked, self-serving, and lacking integrity. Those are the choices given to us. We find ourselves with a political candidate selection process that's so broken that it effectively weeds out the best candidates and has served up for us these two, who are really effectively the only two we can choose between. We find ourselves with a nation more divided along lines of party and ideology than it has been in most of our lifetimes. And with each party's platform amounting more and more to simply undoing whatever those guys have been doing for the previous four years. And we find ourselves with candidate attacks upon one another reaching an all-time low, setting a tone of incivility for the whole nation, normalizing unkindness, and reinforcing an increasingly entrenched us versus everybody else divide. And as a result, we find ourselves, I think, with most of us finding our hearts filled with concern and even fear as we contemplate life for our nation beginning at noon on January 20th. I mean, we've all seen the results. Unprecedented, unprecedented negative ratings for both candidates. Historical levels of strongly disliking both candidates. The majority of voters uh, doubting the honesty and trustworthiness of both candidates. Two out of three or more say the other candidate is dishonest and untrustworthy, but more than 20% also see the, the candidate they are voting for in the same terms. The majority of voters saying they feel scared if the person they are voting for doesn't win, so much so that that's uh, shaping the vote of many. Three out of 10 who are voting for Hillary Clinton say they're doing so really as a vote against Donald Trump, and four out of 10 are saying the opposite. And as you probably saw, younger voters are register, registering deeper disillusionment with both, or disappointment with both candidates and disillusionment with the whole thing. One out of four millennials said that they would rather have a random citizen of the United States chosen as president by the lottery than to have either of these two candidates <laughs> serve as president. And... Uh, more tongue-in-cheek, but nevertheless revealing, uh, another statistic says that the same number, one out of four millennials, would rather have a giant meteor destroy the earth than have either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton occupy the White House. So regardless of who wins, I think it's safe uh, to say that virtually all of us will wake up on Wednesday morning with a deep sense of relief to be done with all the shenanigans and a deep sense of concern about what shenanigans will follow. You may have seen the recent Pearls Before Swine comic strip. Pig walks up to Rat, who's sitting behind a desk, with a sign that says, Hope for the future, $5. Pig says, I'll take some hope. And Rat says, Sorry, all out. Can I interest in you in some dread? <laughs> but despair isn't an option for us. Richard John Newhouse said this, Christians have not the right to despair, for despair is sin. 
And we have not the reason to despair, quite simply because Christ is risen. So how about some perspective this morning and some hope? I want to invite you to turn with me to a passage of Scripture that isn't about politics or our election or about the United States, but which nonetheless has an important perspective to offer us in these turbulent and weary and anxious pre-election days. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. People of God have just stepped across the Jordan into the promised land. They have yet to have their very first battle, and this takes place. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and he asked him, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. And he asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Some things I would love to have us notice together about this passage. Notice first the natural human propensity to divide ourselves into us and them. How did Joshua see this person standing before him? Not on the basis of what they had in common, but through the lens of divisions that existed in the culture. In this case, the divide between Canaanites and Israelites. Sociologists confirm again and again that our natural tendency is to divide and to band together, to join together with those who are like us, to pull away from those who are unlike us, and then to see each other through the lens of our differences and our distinctions, and to see ourselves as being superior to everybody who occupies all those other categories. So we are prone to ask, just as Joshua does, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Are you Republican or are you Democrat, liberal or conservative, American or foreign, white or a person of color, male or female, us, one of me, or one of those other guys? But notice, secondly, God's unwillingness to see humanity in the same way. The commander of the Lord's army answers, neither Literally, in the Hebrew, the word is no. When God looks at the world, he doesn't see Israelites and Canaanites, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, Americans and everybody else. As the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come, he says. God sees the world as divided between those who acknowledge his command, his kingship, his rule, and those who don't. You've heard me say a number of times, the the great C.S. Lewis line, it says, in all the world there are two sorts of people. Those to whom God says, thy will be, or those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. There are only those who recognize God's claim as king and bow to him, and those who don't. Paul describes how this view of humanity, even in the cauldron of the ancient world with all of its many divisions, 
came to be his own new perspective when he became a follower of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, he says, Christ died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone the new has come. There are just two categories of humanity. He says in Galatians chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ if you belong to Christ. That becomes the central question. God says, I am the commander, and there's only one fault line that divides person from person, and that is your view of me. Do you concede my claims or not? The third thing to notice, and that is that God rules now. God is in charge now. He says, I am the commander to Joshua. Not, I will be once the land is fully captured. Not once all the Canaanites are reformed or tossed out of the land. Not once my people get their act together and begin to live lives that please me. But now, even when the land is in upheaval, morally and spiritually, and my own people are as well, even now, I rule. And God's claim of being commander is every bit as applicable for us in our upheaval today. God steps into our presence and says, I rule. I am the commander. Well, I think that raises a couple of challenging questions. The first is, in what way can we understand God to be in charge when we have human government and not everybody who's part of our human government acknowledges his claims? We'll look at that question first and then come to the second question of how we can understand God to be in charge when things are clearly, in some aspects of our life, not going away that God would want them to go. So, three reflections on government from a biblical perspective. First of all, government is given as a gift by God for our benefit and to fulfill God's purposes. We see this in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established, and the authorities that exist have been established by God. A little later on, it says the authorities are God's servants. And that is true. I think it's important for us to recognize, regardless of how the government is structured. We here in the United States live in what we call a federal republic. In his book, The American Hour, Oz Guinness makes a really fascinating observation about uh, what he calls the American experiment of, of what he identifies as the sort of three irreducible elements that make the American experiment what it is. Politically, it is that we embrace democracy, which is rooted in ancient Greek philosophy. Economically, it's that we embrace capitalism, which was first developed in Europe in the Middle Ages. And morally, it is that we embrace the Judeo-Christian moral framework. In other words, the ethics that are given to us from the scriptures. We embrace that as the foundation of our laws and our life together while still affirming complete freedom of religion. And it was the modern enlightenment that brought these three elements together and handed us the American experiment. So given our commitment to a biblical underpinning of our society, it's easier for us maybe to see how our government 
uh, is or could be at least a gift from God. But Paul says that all government is a gift from God regardless of how it's structured. Remember, Paul is writing these words when he is, uh, is uh, part of a national group that is under the rule of an occupying army, the Roman Empire, which is ruled by someone who came into power by force, by, by use of arms. The emperor who, who claimed all uh, responsibility and all rule within all of the, the reach of the world. So I think it's valuable for us to remember that somehow God's claim to give us government as a gift is applicable in all contexts. It's also helpful for us, I think, to remember that there are limits to what human government and human leaders are able to accomplish. Listen to these two familiar verses. I just think they're helpful for us to hear this morning. Psalm 118, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper, and I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There are limits to what other human beings and and, and human governmental structures can do. And Isaiah 9, 6, familiar to you, speaking about the coming Messiah, the government shall be ultimately upon his shoulders. John Stone Street from the Colson Center wrote, our deepest problems are not political. And so no politician or election is the solution for our deepest problems. This means not looking to our government to provide what it was never designed to deliver or are capable of providing things such as hope or peace or joy or unity or satisfaction or happiness. Beth Moore in her blog wrote, we cast our votes, but if we cast our confidence into our candidates, woe be unto us. So God's given us our government regardless of how that government is carrying out its rule. And God uh, says that there are limits to what we can look for to our government. And God also makes it clear that all human government is ultimately under his sway. Listen to these words from Daniel chapter 2, where, where Daniel is living in a land that, where there is foreign rule that does not acknowledge God's rule. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, he sets up kings, and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep things and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness. Light dwells in him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. So all of that leads to the second question then, which is in what way can we understand God to be in charge when things in this world so clearly look as though they are not under his rule. When things in this world go in a way that is counter to what God has declared is his will, and when leaders in our governments walk contrary to God and his ways, when it feels like things are going in the wrong direction. I think that's where the verse that we began the service with this morning is so important. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous, that's a word like saint, it just means those who believe in God or trust in God, what can the righteous do? Remember that the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord is on his holy throne. The Christian faith has always upheld the crucial distinction between what God causes 
as the direct expression and outworking of his will, and what God allows, which may be contrary to what he has revealed in Scripture to be his will, but which nonetheless serves his redemptive purposes in ways that we certainly wouldn't expect and might not even be privileged to see. And there are all sorts of examples, Cyrus, Darius, others in the Old Testament, who are uh, examples of this seeming contradiction of God having a stated will that goes one direction and yet allowing something that goes another direction. There are some people who anticipate really dire results uh, with either candidate coming, uh, being elected on Tuesday. Maybe a crash of the stock market, ramped up aggression by ISIS, a reshuffling of the world order, a decline of American influence and respect abroad. Why might God allow, not cause, but allow a candidate to come to the Oval Office who contributed to this destabilizing of our country and the world in, in some of those ways? The answer is that there are things that matter to God more than our life, our liberty, and the pursuit of our happiness. God's greatest concern is that we would find our happiness and our life and our existence in him. His greatest concern is with his rule over our heart as the commander who stands before us. Bringing individuals into a relationship with Jesus as king, equipping them to live as citizens of his kingdom, God's desire is for each person on this planet to recognize him as the commander and to bow before him in worship and in service, regardless of what our political or governmental contexts are. The kingdom of God, as you know, is wherever Jesus rules as king in the hearts of men, women, and children as they put their faith in him as savior and as they put their confidence in him as king, just as we heard people so beautifully declare this morning as they became new members. So if that's what matters most to God, then God can use insecurity and instability that arises when a new leader shakes national and world confidence. God can allow those things, just as he has allowed the oppression of faith in China, for example, or the poverty of many in sub-Saharan Africa, as a way of turning people to himself. Not because it is how he wants things to look, but is because he allows them to serve his ultimate redemptive ends. Government is God's gift, but the government is not God's answer to all human ills. God is and only God is, and he wants us to know that. So God could allow a devastating outcome, not only to expose the very obvious need for reform of our political structures and processes in this nation, but far more deeply to expose our need for God and to turn people's eyes to God. Whenever we come up against a human limitation in ourselves, in our leaders, in our institutions, it forces us to consider our poverty as compared to the limitless, (coughs) boundless, resources and sufficiency of God. So experiencing some of those kinds of struggles may move a person who doesn't know God to look to God for the very first time. It may move those who already know him to look to God more deeply than ever before. In all things, as we sang at the start of our service, whether in times of prosperity or in times of darkness, We can bless God because God comes and offers us himself. 
So God is ruler now, even when things seem contrary to his will, even when things seem outside of his control. Notice just two other things about this passage. Notice God's place as ruler is among us, not off in the distant heaven somewhere. He says, I have come now. There are multiple visitations of God with humanity throughout the Old Testament uh, as a person is talking with the angel of the Lord and discovers that is actually God himself in human form. The same dawning realization happens here for Joshua as he realizes who this angel of the Lord is and gives him worship and takes off his sandals. But these divine visitations find their ultimate expression in the incarnation. When God himself comes and becomes flesh and pitches his tent in our midst and he begins to establish his government among us. He lives among us. He dies for us. He establishes his kingdom. He rises again to be with us always and over us as king. The last words in Matthew's gospel echo these words from God to Joshua. I am with you always, even to the end of the age and even in this, whatever the this is. Joshua models for us a right response before God, which is worship and obedience to worship God, to fall down on our faces before him in reverence, regardless of our life circumstances, giving God his proper place in our lives. Our right place is to honor his right place over us. To look to him and not to others, not to anything else for all that we need. To give him greater weight than we give anything or anyone else in our lives. That's the privilege of what we get to give to God, and our obedience. What message does my Lord have for his servant, Joshua says? It is God's right place to rule over us because he is the commander and king. So whatever is right, whatever is good, and whatever is necessary is his to determine and his to declare and ours to seek to bring about. All of us, leaders included, are called to put him first and to live a life submitted to his rule. And all of us, leaders included, are answerable for our choices and for the life we live. So all of us, government leaders included, are called to submit every part of our lives to his rule each day. Ecclesiastes 12, 12, where, Ecclesiastes, where, where Solomon is, is wrestling with the, the constant upheaval of the nations and the constant change of human history and, and, and nothing seeming to be lasting and permanent. He comes to the very end of all of that and he says, when all is said and done, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and honor him with your obedience. This is the whole duty of man. So those things said, in the light of those things, how should we view this upcoming election and its outcomes? And how should we think about casting our vote? I know a number of you have already cast your votes. I know a number of you have already decided how you will vote. I want to share with you just some of my own wrestling with this. And, and uh, so this is because several people have, have said, I, um, I don't really want to know who you're voting for. But I'd just love to know how you're thinking some of this through. And I think we give each other the gift of having those conversations with each other. So the, the purpose of this isn't for you to try to guess where my vote is going on Tuesday. Uh, but just to encourage all of us to continue in our ever uh, more faithful thinking about um, how we approach these things as followers of Christ. 
So one of the things that struck me is the implications of what we've said. If, if I am to live my life in all things as one subject to the rule and kingship of God as my commander, then, then it is my responsibility to be obedient to God by, obedient, by being obedient to my conscience before God. In fact, this, this specific connection is made in Romans chapter 13, the passage we saw earlier, where it says it's necessary to submit to the authorities because of conscience. Our conscience should shape our actions and our engagement with government. And as Paul will tell us again and again as we get a little farther in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, we have the responsibility not only to act on the basis of our own conscience, but to respect each other acting on the basis of their conscience. So, four ways, as I, best I can understand it, that we could approach voting on Tuesday according to our conscience before God. First, there are some who, in good conscience, vote for one of the two electable candidates on the basis of one particular issue, such as the right to life or religious freedom, or perhaps care for the marginalized in our society, and they vote for the candidate who they think has the greatest likelihood of affecting the most good in that one issue that they see as overarching and, uh, and as preceding all others. For them, this is the deciding factor. You're probably aware that the president appoints all of the judges, and there is currently a vacancy on the Supreme Court. So whoever is appointed to that seat could determine the balance of votes on issues such as Roe versus Wade and the right to life and other matters of religious liberty, making the selection of this next president important for those uh, reasons and for those issues. And that's why some people in good conscience are identifying a single issue and voting along those lines. But I do think there are other faithful ways for us to cast our votes. Secondly, there are some who in good conscience vote for one of the two electable candidates on the basis of which candidate they believe has the greatest likelihood of bringing about the most good in all areas and not just in one particular area. In this case, the voter takes a wider view than a single issue and also considers more widely how the candidate's character, moral standards, personal faith, as well as that person's party affiliation, the platform on which they've run, their economic plan, how all those things fit together and may affect change for the good in our nation. As you know, according to our Constitution, the president is limited in power but does have some real powers. In addition to appointing justices, the person in the White House heads up the intelligence efforts of our country, handles all foreign affairs, and functions as the de facto leader of the free world, commands the military, though uh, funding is voted upon by Congress, and signs bills or sends them back uh, with suggested changes or vetoes them, although those vetoes can be overturned. But it, it isn't only the, these specific powers that can shape a nation. There are other uh, issues that are worth reflecting on that we don't, may not think about as much. How might an individual contribute to the spirit of, of division or unity to the pluribus side or the unum side of our country? How might a candidate contribute to strengthening or undermining our nation's confidence in our government? How might a candidate contribute to a spirit of fear and mistrust of those who are unlike us or of courage and risk to move towards those who are unlike us? And how might a candidate contribute to a climate of grace and civility as opposed to one of judging and attacking? 
So all of these things taken together, all of these wide considerations are drawn together and then a vote is cast on the basis of conscience. You may have noticed that I'm not suggesting that simply identifying a candidate's political party is enough to settle the question of conscience. Political parties, that's because political parties are built around our answers to a limited number of questions. And those are about the role of government and its relationship to individual freedoms and rights. And each one articulates a limited set of moral priorities in the light of those convictions. So according to sociologists Christian Smith and Jonathan Haidt, each, each of these parties has a different value that it holds most sacred in thinking about the relationship of a government with its citizens. For Republicans or social conservatives, their most sacred value boils down to preserving the institutions and traditions that sustain a moral community. For Democrats or social liberals, their most sacred value boils down to caring for victims of oppression who fall through the cracks of our society. Wouldn't we as Christians want to preserve our moral footing as a nation and care for victims of oppression? Might we not see value in both of those things? While we may lean, and uh, probably most of us do lean towards one party as, being, as more consistently lining up with what the scriptures teach about rights and responsibilities and moral foundations, I think there are dimensions of both parties and both parties' platforms that we ought, as followers of Christ, be able to point across to and say, I can really see the value of that from a biblical perspective. As one example, I think that there that in general, social conservatives do a better job of advocating for the life of, uh, of a human being before birth, while social liberals tend to do a better job of advocating for the sanctity of that same life after the child is born and then finds himself or herself in difficult circumstances. As another example, in the area of gun control, I think that in general, social conservatives do a better job of advocating for adequate armament for those who are in the military or the police force as a way of helping to increase societal order, while social liberals do a better job of advocating for the voluntary limiting of access to firearms for ordinary citizens for the sake of decreasing societal violence. We could pick any issue and go through it and be able to recognize uh, aspects of a faithful biblical perspective, I think, um, often on both sides. So whether or not you agree with those specific examples, and that's not a point, the point of this, I think as Christians, we might be able to agree that voting purely, exclusively along party lines may not be a luxury that we have. Third, there are some in good conscience who vote for a candidate who is not electable. They do this either because in good conscience they can't cast a vote for either of the two electable candidates, and so they seek to find a candidate that they can wholeheartedly support, even if that candidate will never see the Oval Office. And as you probably know, in addition to the Republican and Democratic Party candidates and the Libertarian Party candidate, on our ballot of 15 possible write-in candidates, there are also candidates from the Socialist Party, the, the Green Party, the Workers' Party, the Constitution Party, and the America's Party. And you can also choose between nine independent people running for president, including the owner of an exotic animal farm in Oklahoma, an economics professor from Boston University, a teacher from Michigan who registered under the nickname None of the Above, and for real, and the mayor of a Kentucky town that has all of 587 residents. So some will vote in good conscience uh, for someone who is not one of the two electable candidates because they want to be able to cast a vote for someone they say, I can 
I can wholeheartedly stand behind this person. Or they may cast a vote for, one of, for someone who's not an electable candidate because exasperated by our current political system that gives us these sorts of candidates, they cast a vote for political reform by writing in the name of a candidate that they believe is genuinely qualified for the office, even if their vote is not recorded as they do that. And then finally, there are some who in good conscience will vote for one of the two electable candidates, not on the basis of which candidate they believe will do the most good, but on the basis of which candidate they believe will cause the least permanent damage during the years that they are in office. And I think this is also a legitimate expression of our conscience before God. Whether due to matters of character flaws or a possible impact on, of the, on the moral climate of our nation or the economy or our relationship with other nations, So all of those things then are weighed together, asking questions such as, how will the country be impacted by uh, this person's leadership over the long term? Where, which, which, under which leadership will the greatest possible erosion uh, take place? Who has the potential to hand on our country to the next president in the best possible shape? So with those things being said, and I realize that's a lot, and I realize in all of that, it probably stirs up more than it settles, and I get that. And again, this isn't about how I'm voting. It isn't about uh, specifically how you're voting. It's about how we as followers of Christ seek to approach the ballot in a way in which we are saying yes to the one who is our commander and our king. So just to conclude with these things. With two days to go, First of all, and James, it says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. I want to encourage you to have a conversation with at least one other person in the next two days, which isn't, who are you voting for? But which is, how are you approaching the way you're thinking about your vote? And how are your convictions as a follower of Christ or as someone whose beliefs are different than that, how do those things, how are those brought to bear and then let's listen to one another. Let's listen and listen well and ask follow-up questions. I've noticed in my conversations with folks, it's so easy to say yes, but, as the first thing that comes out of our mouth as soon as somebody begins to speak about how they're thinking about this whole process. Secondly, and in those conversations, let's just remind each other about the, the very real limits of human government uh, and that God's governance of all things is utterly limitless and to be trusted. Second, uh, Colossians chapter 3 says our conversations should always be seasoned with grace. And as followers of Christ, this has to be an absolute non-negotiable. I don't know how we as the people of God can engage in conversation that becomes heated and that becomes uh, uh, heated in a way that leads to our saying hurtful things to one another or about someone. God calls us uh, to take the high road and to choose not to speak ill, to choose to work together to move forward regardless of which candidate is elected. And I believe that God calls us uh, to continue to be and all the more to be a people of grace as we go forward. Third, in 1 Thessalonians, it says, pray without ceasing. I think we've had a lot of opportunity to do that and will over the next two days as we pray for the results of the election. And then I think we probably agree that uh, we're not done with our praying at that point. Uh, that, that there's a sense in which a new kind of praying needs to begin. And I want to urge us into that. And one of the ways we can do that is to gather together in this room tomorrow night at, from 7 to 8. 
We're just going to come together, anybody who wants to, to spend one hour uh, praying for biblical outcomes for uh, this election and praying for the future of our nation. I hope you can be part of that. And then lastly, I think it's so appropriate. Uh, we've talked about leadership as a way of delegating perspective, and it's so appropriate that we, have, as followers of Christ, would keep reminding one another, keep bringing one another into the perspective that God is in charge and he is completely to be trusted. His holy and loving purposes will prevail no matter what happens, and we can completely trust him. We have every reason to anchor ourselves to the rock who is our God. Psalm 11 says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the people of God do? Remember that God is in his holy temple, and God is on his holy throne. Would you pray with me? Lord, as your word has reminded us, our hope can only, in the end, ever be in you. Which is a good thing, because you have shown yourself worthy of our trust in you, without fail, again and again and again. We don't find solid ground in our circumstances or our unfolding history as a nation or in our government leaders. We find our solid ground in you, Lord. You are the one who quiets our fears. You are our all in all, our commander and our comforter. So it's in your love that we stand together. And we pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?
God we gather to worship this morning is sufficient not only for the rule and governance of our nation and of this world, but of each of our individual lives. And sometimes it's such a sweet gift to have someone just come alongside you and pray with you and for you to remind you of his goodness and his presence in your life and to, to ask for, his God's, for God's good work in your life circumstances. If you would appreciate prayer, we always have leaders from the church who are available to pray for you at the end of each of our services. And some of you have come to Covenant for the first time this morning. We love that you're here, and we've got a connections desk in the back of the sanctuary. We'd like to ask if you would just, before you leave this morning, after we get a chance to chat with you and get to know you a bit, if you would just stop by the connections desk and give us a chance to give you a gift and see if we can answer any questions uh, that you may have about Covenant and what God's up to here. People of God, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Together, God's people said, Amen. Amen.